go. Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. We have a very special episode. Tonight is episode 200. We have a wide range of wonderful guests uh, on the show tonight. We have um, Wade Laughter. You want me to say something about that or you just want to leave it at that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, introduce yourself. <laughs> Find the right. button here. <laughs> Um, yeah, Wade Laughter here, uh, founder of House of Harlequin, uh, propagator of the, the cultivar known as Harlequin, have for a number of years uh, really been doing the deep dive on cannabinoids other than THC and their potential benefit for health and human safety. Um, but I'm really clear that THC is an important component if you're talking cannabis as medicine. So. Um, my whole thing is uh, highest quality and purity of product uh, because your end users often are somebody who really needs what you're producing and it's gotta be done right. That's my whole thing. And that means no contaminants, no extra funny business, just straight up cannabis medicine because I know that by itself will do no harm. And that's all I got for the moment. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much. We also have uh, Breeder Steve with us, the original aquaponic cannabis grower, the first one to, to write about it online. Thanks for having me again. I guess this is my third episode with you guys, huh? Yeah, yeah. I just realized, I, th I thought it was the second, and I looked today and realized it was actually the third time. I was super stoked. Yeah, because I remember the second time you invited me, I said, I'm sure I said everything I had to say the first time. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I, I listened to the other day and realized... Again. Yeah, you have so many cool things to, to say, and I'd love to hear about your, your newest uh, aquaponic project because you're doing some cool stuff. You even got some caimans and stuff going on down there, so super That's stoked to hear about cool. that. Yeah, cool. Definitely. Uh, we, also, <laughs> we also have uh, Dale Hunt. Hi, I'm Dale. Uh, I am a patent attorney and a plant scientist, um, degrees in botany and genetics and molecular and cell biology and I've been doing patent law for 23 plus years, been in cannabis about seven years. And um, I founded a law firm called Plant and Planet. And uh, that was in early 2019. And uh, in December, I launched a company called Breeders Best. And that is intended to help uh, independent plant breeders uh, get protection for the things they create and get them out to markets all over the world. So. Um, we're just getting started on that company, but we're super excited about trying to make a difference. Very cool. Thank you. Awesome. And then we also have uh, Roger from ILGM. Good evening, everybody. I'm Roger from IloveGrowingMarijuana.com, and I hope you enjoy the show tonight. Many guests are going to be popping in and out, I think. And yeah, we have a lot of fun that way sometimes. Awesome. And we also have KDAC, one of our longest and oldest uh, fans of the show. Hey, Steve. Happy to be here. Um, I'm a veteran medical cannabis patient. I'm really happy to be here for the 200th episode, man. I've been here since the first one went live, man. Awesome. And then we, we have someone else in chat. I'm not sure who that is. 
Oh, it's what's like up, that. Mr. Steve? What's up, man? How's it going? <laughs> Irie, Irie. I'm uh, sorry I'm a little late, just got home, but we're uh, live and direct up from the Northwest. So, I'm Mike for everyone watching on YouTube, Mike MC West on Facebook. I'm a uh, biochemist, build me uh, medical and uh, recreational and hemp extraction labs. Currently building a lab up here in British Columbia for Embark, which is Bubble Man's brand. Uh, I guess Bubble Man's uh, hash lab and will, will be multi-modality extraction lab up here in Canada's market. And it's uh, one hell of a facility. Uh, I was, uh, um, Marcus was kind enough to give me a, a tour of the place before you guys started putting in some of the major equipment. And uh, man, is that place big, is all I have to say. I know you guys have two of them that are bigger than that one even too, I believe, right? Uh, yeah, so BC's a three-story three building. Uh, it's just shy of 50,000 square feet. Ontario's going to have a 50,000 square feet, or excuse me, 100, 105,000 square feet. And then we have a couple of projects abroad as well. Awesome. So, awesome. Yeah, get, getting, some, uh, getting some processing available for all the med medical and uh, recreational consumers up, up in Canada. Very cool. Um, well, uh, thanks again for joining us. So, uh, so Wade, tell us what you've been up to lately and uh, what are some of the, the projects? I know a lot of rules have changed, especially with the caretaker stuff in California uh, uh, for the better um, uh, and how uh, patients can, can receive stuff, especially those in need. Um, uh, I know uh, you've been big, uh, you know, very much involved with that. Do you want to tell us what you've been up to? Uh, sure. Um... <laughs> Locally here in Nevada County, um, working with uh, some of the permitted farmers, manufacturers, uh, and the dispensary here, uh, <clears throat> we've, uh, we're most of the way, I'm probably being premature to announce it, but we're about ready to start releasing product uh, with the model of the Caladrius Network, where uh, we provide uh, specific formulations for uh, the families of children with catastrophic illnesses. And um, <clears throat> um, yeah, going out the gate, uh, what it basically means is for these families uh, that have qualified in our system already, uh, we'll be able to provide them the medicines they need at no cost. Uh, all of the persons involved in the, in the supply chain from nurseries all the way through to the dispensary are providing their services and or their products at no cost so that we can uh, put these products into the hands of these families again at no cost because most of these families, anybody that's involved in the medical system knows <clears throat> you're not gonna have much money left, uh, particularly if you have an intractable illness. So uh, that's probably one of the uh, things I'm happiest about, if you will. Uh, because that's been a thing. The Caladrius Network was something that we started back in 2016. Um, state law in California required us to shut that down in, 20, at the, in January of 2019. At that point, we had uh, 146 families that we were actively sending them a, a box of supplies every month to get their child through the month. Uh, we had another 700 and some in our intake system. And state law changed and required us to shut down. So we're rebuilding that network now um, and we'll see how it plays out. 
eventually we hope to be able to offer cannabis medicine at little or no cost to people who uh, need it, whether or not they're children. Uh, but right now it's limited to children with diagnoses of catastrophic illness. Uh, most of those kids are uh, in untreatable cancers, um, uh, intractable epilepsy, or a condition called epidermolosis bullosa, where the children's skin doesn't bind properly to the, to the tissues that are underneath the skin. And so any sort of blow can cause the skin to blister and slough off. And so these kids, most of them die of sepsis or uh, skin cancers but we've created a cream that uh, doesn't reverse the genetic condition, but seems to really be remarkable at healing the skin and dealing with the pain of raw skin. Um, and then probably uh, maybe bigger news uh, in the world is uh, I've taken up a project in Utah. Utah created a uh, medical cannabis program this past year, and uh, it went into operation in March. And um, I'm working with a, uh, the only vertically integrated operator in Utah. Uh, and part of what drew me to this group was they, uh, they're all sort of bootstrap funded and um, one of their main interests is food hubs. So I loved hearing uh, Roger talk about growing food this year because I think it's really a time when those of us who have learned so much about plants through working with cannabis can start educating people on how uh, the, the practices and standards that we apply to cannabis can produce really remarkable food as well as remarkable cannabis. Um, been doing a lot of advocacy work on the state level um, and in some preliminary conversations with some folks in Jamaica who are interested in uh, some of the genetics we're working with and um, and I'm interested in that because, uh, again, there's an opportunity there to see a lot of people have access to the preparations that we know can do so much good. Um, what else is going on? I don't know. That's kind of it. I'm, I'm really uh, feeling uh, actually kind of grateful for all the insanity that's happening in our culture right now. It feels like we are being forced to confront a lot of the poor choices we've made and encouraged and offered an opportunity to make some fresh choices. And it's everything from the way our law enforcement interacts with citizens in our country to um, how cannabis businesses are treated. Uh, one of the things that's been happening in California is a lot of, because uh, <clears throat> the physical location, address, et cetera, et cetera, of all cannabis businesses are a matter of public record in California. One of the things that's been happening is organized gangs have been going around and breaking into manufacturing facilities and dispensaries and burglarizing them and robbing them. Uh, and because of the slow response times that the police uh, are doing because of all of the other activities that they're having to deal with, uh, many of these break-ins are going um, unchallenged. And um, I know dispensary owners that have uh, they, they lost their cash, they lost their ATM machine, they lost all their stock, and the cops never showed up. So it's, it's really, uh, we've gotten the BCC to take down 
the list serve that are listed all of the license holders and their addresses. Uh, we're still working on the Department of Public Health and the uh, 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 Department of Food and Ag, which co uh, licenses cultivators to take down a, that information as well. Um, but again, I, I feel uh, somewhat inspired by this whole thing that's going on and uh, keep reminding myself that the only thing that's constant is change. And boy, we got a lot of change going on at the moment. That's all I got. And it's really great to see some of these people again. Thank you for doing this this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know uh, I find myself uh, often uh, finding solace and, and, uh, and uh, basically Zen in the garden, working with plants, especially coming back from Africa and the craziness. Uh, and I know a lot of other people out there are spending a lot more time in their gardens, given the different crazinesses going on in the world for, you know, depending on the different reasons, depending on where you are. <clears throat> but I'm definitely looking forward to seeing like what new techniques and what new uh, ideas and what new discoveries people make in their gardens, you know, having all this extra time to spend in their gardens. And I think that, you know, you're going to see a lot of cool new ideas come out of this uh, as a result of, of people just spending more time in front of their plants. So hopefully that'll be some of the positives that come out of it yeah they yeah, say so garden centers have had a run on lately with so many people having the time and inclination to garden so that, that oh yeah a, an upside for sure i normally order from baker creek uh farms every year rareseeds.com for those of you that uh that, that get vegetable seeds out there and uh, they were almost completely sold out and had to shut their website down for a week because they were so overwhelmed with orders compared to normal uh, so it is really awesome to see the resurgence and people uh, interested in, in producing for themselves and, and rely, you know, and having their own food and their own medicine production. And I'm sure safety. that same boom is happening in the, in the homegrown side as well. It's safety, man. It's safety to be able to provide for your own family, whether it's a garden, your own medicine or, or eggs, man, eggs in the backyard or chickens, man. It's, it's just, we need that right now. Our whole culture needs to get back to yeah, I found the same thing at Johnny Seeds when I got a late start this year because we're rebuilding the old greenhouse. And uh, I went to Johnny's and a lot of times I buy the packets that have 25 or 30 seeds so I can grow them and find out if I like them and then I can buy a bigger supply. And they were all sold out. I felt like I was in a toilet paper store. I swear to God. <laughs> but I'm so happy that people are, like you said, I just, and Wade, I think what you're doing is just phenomenal. Anytime uh, somebody dedicates their career to working with kids and children and helping make and ease their pain when they're sick. I, I find that number one on my list is commendable. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, what about you, uh, Steve, uh, Breeder Steve? You're doing all kinds of cool stuff down there, including some aquaponics. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he was the original person, the very first person to put on anything in writing as far as I can find and uh, and any kind of research, uh, and I've done quite a bit on aquaponic cannabis growing uh, way back on overgrow.net. He was the very first person. Uh, so um, tell us what you've been up to. You're doing all kinds of cool stuff down there in Colombia. Yeah, we got a license down in Colombia for medical and we're doing bio cannabis, field grown, really making the land better every year. And uh, the reservoir we just finished is 3 million liters. It's got all, everything in it from little alligators or crocodiles, you know, caimans, you know. Um, what do they call them? Bobo Diaz or something? They got a couple names for them down there, but there's 
all kinds of fish and waterfowl from flamingos to ducks that land in it and use it. And it's just amazing to see it. It's very new. So it's going to develop, you know, but the it'll stock itself to some degree. Like even a lot of the fish that got in there, there's uh, it's in the plains where, where the farm is. So there's a rainy season that's the short, a very short rainy season usually. But uh, all these fields end up with little creeks that were dry eight months of the year. Then all of a sudden they've got little creeks with fish in them. So as you're digging uh, your reservoir, you will end up getting native species filling in. And it's really something to see. There's even like wild passion fruit and stuff that grows around in the bush there. And it's really sweet and they're little, but they're just delicious. But they grenadillas. But man, oh man, it's really something to to just be doing the bio growing, even at scale. People say you can't do you know, good organic growing at scale. And I'm like, try me, you know, <laughs> I've been doing it a long time. It's just logistics. So it's beautiful. Most of that farm is just one way, but the greenhouses where there's some genetics library and stuff and the juveniles, wherever there's a call for greenhouse, which isn't much there. We even grow the mothers outside um, with supplemental lighting that's on 6 p.m. to midnight. And then, uh, juveniles if their variety is not acclimatized that you can just grow in the field without any supplemental lighting obviously those are the ideal but there's no such thing as tropical cbd for example so if you want to grow cbd on the equator it takes a little time to acclimatize that and challenge down there is you have to wait for quotas for every seed you plant that's over one percent thc so instead of being able to just do generation after generation and get your work done, you're always waiting on red paint. So it's really painful doing it the licensed way. I did it legal in Switzerland for years, years ago, you know, 20 years ago, literally. And uh, it was legal, no license. I can work with that. You know, that's the way it's supposed to be. And once they overcomplicate the licensing, as they do so often in so many places, they really uh, make it inefficient, you know, is a kind way to put it. And I am they set you up to bail. Yeah, I'm at the edge of my <laughs> seat all the time, whether I want to keep doing it or not. Like, is this really where it's at? Like, I'm trying hard to do this on the legal side and, you know, jumping through their hoops, but they don't make it easy, you know? So anyways it's i do love a challenge and there's lots of people that want to do it so i'm happy to throw down and get it done with, the, with my team there but uh it, you know you're just working against <laughs> rivers sometimes it seems but it is satisfying when you do start to see results and we're trying to fill up and keep full 2,000 acres right now which is 889 hectares actually but there's um just over 860 maybe plantable but that's a fair bit of herb and and we do both psychoactive and what they call non-psychoactive which is one percent thc cbn combined but you know i am developing things i've found from the world of seed which is really interesting to me the two that i'm trying to bring up levels of minor ones are the 
CBDV and the THCV because there's not as much of that around. And if I can get um, good selection spread up of those, they're considered non-psychoactive. So that means no security, no fencing. It's much easier to go ahead and keep planting. You don't need a quota for every plant you put out. So definitely there's some advantage to dealing with some of those. And THCV, you know, is from hotter climates anyway. Uh, so it's not too much of a stretch. And CBDV as well, and more Middle Eastern. But I'm having fun with it. I'm glad to be back at it. I took quite a while off and I've been back at it about four years right now. And yeah, it's just uh, great to be able to big up the aquaponic. And I love that you've been promoting it so strongly and a few others, mainly your friends. And it just warms my heart because I just always felt really strongly about it being a, a fantastic way to grow by any metric, whether it's yield or flavor or you know, sustainability. But it's just overall easy you know if you set it up well aquaponics is the easiest way to do it if you're doing it in a facility you're just throwing them in rocks shaking out the rocks <laughs> leaving the stuff there there's not i don't clean down between every uh, crop when i did them hey i wasn't trying to meet any special standards or anything either but if you have healthy system all the good bacteria the aerobic bacteria is already thriving in that there you don't want to start over again to try and uh, establish the colonies you want. Once it's once it's all in equilibrium, you can kind of take plants in and out of the system, and the same system can feed all the sections of the garden. So it's really uh, uh, just beautiful. I just loved it. I was really just you know when I first even thought of doing it, because I'd heard of it in other things. So I, I have to play that with grass, and I was just tickled pink to see just those thick white roots coming out right away and i was excited you know I was like this is working really well and you know you make mistakes and learn as you do it but if uh, more people do that way there'd be a hell of a lot less phosphates getting flushed down every saturday morning from hydroponics guys are changing their reservoirs for the aquaponics you just have a constant level float valve popping up the reservoir you never drain it you know it's just much friendlier and the herb tastes better there's no comparison to for me they burn if it's done well they burn with a really clean clean white ash not even gray but white like snow and it just blow away and i just love it when the last coat tastes as good as the first coat you know that doesn't happen when it's overfed and tarry and built up and aquaponics can be done poorly I would always uh, know some guys that I would uh, set up aquaponic systems for. They would end up just wanting to visit once a week not during prohibition. So they would have, you know, dispensers putting in the pellets and stuff. And if you're just making a tea of pellets floating around there, it smells horrible. And your reed's going to smell horrible. You know, this is, uh, it is what it eats. <laughs> there's no two ways about it a fishy smell you don't get a fishy smell from a healthy aquaponic system but from putting a fish in your hole or using fish emulsion or 
the pellets and flakes that are typically fish food are just basically fish emulsion and they smell horrible. Like when you open up a little jar of goldfish flakes, think how nasty that smells. You don't want your weed to smell like that. So whatever you're feeding the fish, if it's real food, it's better than the pellets and flakes. But even if you're feeding them the pellets and flakes, don't feed them more than they would eat in like a minute. Because if the stuff's floating around in the water, it's going to impart a bad flavor to the herb. And I've seen that in commercial aquaponics grows where they, you can tell it's aquaponic, but not in a nice way. <laughs> so if you can keep as much balance of life in there where they're eating off each other as possible, even better, you know? But uh, well, that, the algae, that algae is easy. Let algae and algae eaters feed a lot of it. It's, those are easy. That and uh, a lot of the newbie or aquaponic growers don't understand the need to reduce nitrogen in flour, so they end up with like a ton of that extra chlorophyll on, on the back end. And anyways, I'm sure you've had I think some. When before. you have the mothers growing on the same system, they kind of sponge out the excess. Like the veg plants need more nitrogen, and that's what they'll take, you know. Whereas the flowering plants, they don't need as much. And as long as there's some available to them, they'll take what they need. But if you're forced to feed them anything, it's uh, too much. Awesome, awesome. All righty. Well, we had a another awesome person join us since uh, since we started here. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Frenchie. Yeah, long time. Yeah, it's been a while. Your beard's a lot longer. <laughs> How are you doing? What have you been up to these days? You've been quite the busy man. Uh, no, I actually have not been doing much at all. I've been writing mostly, which is good because I thought I'd never find the time, truly. Uh, but no, otherwise I'm uh, I'm trying to go with the flow, la. and uh, the flow is a heavy duty rush lately. <laughs> Pretty insane. <laughs> so, uh, what are you writing? Are you working on a book? You got? You're, you're yeah, I'm working on the on that book on uh, on Ash, basically. <laughs> so, uh, a big part of it was uh, the origin, origin of cannabis, and uh, and origin of Ash. And uh, I, uh, I went through, how uh, do you say? <clears throat> like I, I was in a mindset that if humanity use any type of plant in any given places rep uh, rapidly year after year, you're gonna be uh, a hot spot of that genetic there. You know what I mean? And going from there, I uh, I mapped the migration of animals and of the cannabis plant 28 million years ago. And then I mapped the migration of uh, Homo erectus, Neanderthal, Denisovan, and Homo sapiens. So I put down all the archaeological sites 
And from that, I created the archaeological hotspot. On top of those archaeological hotspots, I put a genome hotspot. And uh, on top of that, I put the mapping of cannabis today. And it's amazing what I can see. It's really crazy. It's really crazy. And from this, I got three really potential birthplace for, uh, for cannabis. From the Mediterranean Sea, like Israel, to the Altai Mountain. One is in Israel, one is the Tarim Basin, like where they find all those people. Uh, with a, a stash of cannabis at Shaman and all the storm, it's around the Tarim Basin. And that's where the, the first great ash known to the Western world were coming from those places. So the Tarim Basin is hot. Then you have like a hot spot in the Altai mountain where you have the only place where you have two types of psychoactive uh, drugs, the, the, the narrow and broad leaf together in one spot. And there's nothing there. But say all the descendants of the Yamna and the Sitian and all the stoner, nomadic, pastoralist culture, actually they left they left uh, archaeological uh, evidence, but in, uh, in tombs or in uh, engraving in stone. And it's like, I had that hot spot in the middle of fucking nowhere in a mountain with no archaeological hotspot or genon hotspot next to it. It was in between, and it was fucking weird until I came on the research of, uh, of the culture of the, those people, and actually they left archaeological evidence, and when I put those on the map, it became really pretty intense. So that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. So I'm super stoked to read your book on that. Uh, um, I know uh, it's something that uh, I've heard you speak, I think, four separate times on the history of Hatch. And I think I could listen to you probably another 30 hours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I've uh, learning a lot. It's like lately, I, I had that. My problem was, I'm, I was damn sure that cannabis resin was used as an incense. Okay, because frankincense and myrrh and uh, gilde and balsam, all those stuff were worth like uh, more than gold and precious stone. And those, all those cultures where like civilization was born, the Assyrian, Babylonian, uh, Phoenician, Egyptian, all those people, they were really hardcore into incense and... Uh, and bulb and stuff like that. So it was pretty weird. 
And lately, they have found the first evidence of cannabis resin ever. So, 2,700 years old in Israel, in a, in a shrine, in a, in a fortress. So now there is hardcore solid evidence that actually cannabis resin was burned alongside frankincense in uh, the most holy temple of, uh, of holy temple. So now we're talking. <laughs> we're talking burning uh, bush here. Yeah, no, oh, yeah. it's like it's like there is a strong evidence that cannabis resin, ashish or charas, like live resin in some form of other, had been going on underground in ritual, uh, ritualistic, shamanic or uh, religious uh, ceremony. So, so I have one question about your book that I'm sure every single person listening to this is asking themselves or wants to ask you right now. Will you be doing the audio book for it? Uh, I, I never thought about it. Uh, <laughs> oh, the, the question is, will I, will I uh, translate it in French, like for the moment? No, 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 no. Just, just, just you reading the audio book, even in English, with, the, with, your, uh, with your accent. With the accent. Interesting. No, I um, didn't so, thought about the, the, I, I'm not really audio, it's funny. Uh, my daughter is totally, and me, I, I have a hard time on the, I cannot learn listening. I need to read. It's, uh, it's Oh, no, I, I didn't, I didn't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I think it'd be amazing. Yeah, no, no, I would no, love to listen uh, to you read your book in your voice. Yeah, I, I, that, that could be interesting. <laughs> Uh, the other question, I, I wanted to follow this over because I was just over doing an aquaponic panel on Future Cannabis Project, and we came, we're talking about Appalachias, and I was talking about how a lot of the other aquaponic cannabis growers should, should possibly try to come together and maybe think about aquaponics as it's almost its own Appalachia because of the way that the production method was, and uh, he, he, uh, you end up coming up in the conversation on what your thoughts would be, so what are, what are, let me just ask that question, what are your thoughts on on some of the more uh, obscure production methods kind of form, maybe not an Appalachia, but something similar in structure. Uh, an Appalachian is made of standard. That are, an Appalachian is a dedication to quality. And an Appalachian d'origine, with the word origin, the origin is the earth, it's the soil, it's the land. So it's like, there is only one type of Appalachian d'origine it's a terroir, it's sun-grown, it's only local input, la la la, la la la, the whole nine yards. Then, to apply a standardization dedicated to quality for greenhouse, for uh, indoor, and different type of uh, methodology to grow in those conditions, hell yeah. You cannot put them under the same umbrella but you can, uh, you can create something that is very similar per se. It's just a dedication to quality, which means that, which shows uh, the uniqueness of a product. And you can do that. I mean, there is proof 
that you can do that indoor. Look at all the OG. They come from the same stock, but they're different because they've been in the hand of different people. And that it works indoor or synchronous, it's the same. And I'm pretty sure uh, aquaponic, depending of, on who and where, well, the same cultivar is not going to be quite the same. You know what I mean? There is always that. Yes. That varying pairwise in, uh -huh. in earth, but in aquaponics, it's mirrors. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you cannot use the word terroir, but there is that. No, you say that, merwar. That, merwar. There is that osmosis between, between the plant, the person, and the, the condition created to grow the plant. You know what I mean? You, you create uh, your own terroir, and no, exactly. with water, you go even into another world, literally. <laughs> That's why with water, I call it mirror yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's the only way that you're going to be able to meet the and one of the requirements for an Appalachian Dillard is going to be in, in cultivation in native soil. So you, know, the only way you can actually fall under that specific Appalachian ruling would be having you know aquaponic system where you have ponds feeding water through swales. Those swales. That's my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No one way. One way aquaponics is the thing because putting that rich, sweet water into a field is the best thing for the field. You know, the, the, the appellation are based on a, on the land, the climate, and uh, and the soil. Yeah, you are your your and it's made of standard. If you if you use the same standardization for your own world, it works. It's just that you cannot use the same word, but you can uh, use the same concepts and the same type of standardization to bring the highest level product at the end of the day. Like you were talking about being careful of the food you give, otherwise it gets fishy taste. Well, it's part of those standards that have to be followed that are a pain in the butt. But if you follow those standards, you reach a plateau, a level of uh, of qualities that uh, that should be education. Basically, you know the name of the game, huh? It doesn't matter the medium you use. The name of the game is the same when you're dedicated to quality. I remember when. Uh, what, by the way, what's up, guys? I just want to say I just hopped on, but uh, what a fucking proper crew you've got for this episode, Steve. Like. Well done carrying the show, bro. And like, you got champions on the show. That's big. That's big to do. Yeah. I forgot what I was going to say now. <laughs> um, I totally forgot what I was going to say. I guess that's a little stoked. Yo, yo, Dutch. So, <laughs> yeah. Yo, naturally, so your, your property is beautiful. You know, you got this great climate where you have. You know, not only you can take take advantage of the of the mild climate. You have great sun, great exposure. You got your what deciduous forest kind of surrounding you, so you don't you don't have tons of you know tons of side light or strong winds. Um, but obviously, you have part of your property that's going to be outside, part of it's going to be inside. You know, the question that I'm going to pass on to Dale is, you know, because you're cultivating part of that crop in a greenhouse in a way you're controlling that environment but 
So it, it falls into, okay, how much of that controlling your environment is going to, at, at what point does it no longer become that specific appellation, right? It, and I think some some dif some different standards say, you know, if you do use artificial lights, it no longer becomes part of the appellation. Some of them say it has to be native soil. I, I Dale, I believe there's some- Be Before Dale answers, I'd love to give my two cents. Um, because I, I think a lot about this, obviously. Um, and like, I, I, that's why I kind of popped on the jokes of making a, a property aquaponics. Like since a lot of you guys have been on my property, I dug a huge quarter acre pond and I have like five swales coming down my property to connect all this and all my runoffs go into my pond and it's circulating through uh, rocks and I have fish in there and, and amphibians. Um, and so I'm essentially, I'm working slowly on building, and Steve and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, building a system that that is my own ecosystem. And, yeah. and that water goes into my, my greenhouse, which it, it also has native soil in it, but it also has raised beds. I mean, it's, I'm kind of writing these lines. That's why I wanted to like speak on it real quick, you know, and, and I do have mixed lights, but I yeah, have like, what comes out of my, what comes out of my greenhouse is very specific. What comes out of my greenhouse is very specific uh, compared to what comes out of my indoor grows on the same property with the same soil. And that's interesting. Oh. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, like, I, can I, I can take, I can dig up that soil that I'm using, right. And, and put it in a pot, a 20 gallon pot, put it in an indoor garden in my, on my property with the same, like open air moving through, right. Not a closed sealed room. Like I'm trying, right. And it, and it, it's better, easier in the greenhouse. I, I, I literally can put sick plants in there not touch them and they become miraculous plants because my greenhouse has, has over the last four years become a life of its own um being a farmer we're, we're cultivators right we're not only cultivating the plants that provide our income but we're, we're cultivating our farm and in, in doing so we're hopefully enriching our environments both on our farm and in our communities so in, in a way, simply farming is going to alter our environment, hopefully for the better. But farming is, the farmers, actually the community that supports the farmer is part of the terroir, like the cultivar. But the cultivar and the farmer are both living organisms that are shaped and are born from the soil and the climate. Before anything, there is the land and the climate that shapes and give life. Anything else adapts to it. You know what I mean? It's so powerful outside. As soon as you control it, even like like that, sorry guys, it does not work anymore. It's like the, the appellation is really the, the full expression of the land through the product that is in osmosis with the, farm, with the farmer and the methodology. You know what I mean? It's, we are byproducts of the land and the climate. When you take no, the I, I, of the equation, then we manipulate and we create something else that has a lot of value, but you cannot use the same values that you use for those appellations d'origine, we just have to create different type of appellation for 
all the, all, all that richness of uh, of possibility of growing that we have actually i mean it's like it's uh, it's a beautiful and we we need an appellation to cannabis yeah but it's like you want an appellation that is meaningful if nobody yeah, cares about exactly your appellation that. what's the value of it if yes, it's not like the French people that everybody want to copy the appellation we made because it's the top of the top if it's just to make something and makes everybody happy it's not going to work you want to right, have right. something so fucking sharp that the world over want to use your stuff because it's it then you would well, be relevant forever i think I totally agree with you. And I think part of the problem is like literally getting a group of people in the same area on board to be like, yo, we're going to fucking pump this cultivar. We're going to grow it to death. We're going to be the champagne or whatever that, you know, whatever the cultivar is, this is going to be our region. This is going to be our Swiss cheese. Um, you know what I mean? Like no one. Yeah, they grow many, get, many, many types of yeah. in the room. And we know? don't have, we, we do and don't have a but world you can have, You can still have some variety that way. No, but look, look at the Emerald Triangle. We don't even know how much genetics they have because they're fucking growing purple punch and, uh, and wedding cake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Can we stop yeah. doing the same shit than everybody else when we have the goods? It's like we're supposed, it's like, if I am in California, it's because I love the farmer and I love Norcal, but they have a pool of diversity and genetics that is fucking unique on the, on the planet. There is no place in the planet that is, that is known for its quality. We don't even know what they have because they don't grow it anymore. It's like everybody would buy California sun-grown flower, but people in California. It's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. jump in and I, I agree completely with Frenchie and hey, Frenchie, it's good to see you. Uh, and uh, to me, as a, as a biologist, more than as an attorney, I think about the fact that when you've got a true interaction between the organisms in the soil and the genetics of a plant and the weather and the, the arrow, the, the airborne microbes, uh, you know, the yeast and all the other things that are in the air, um, as well as, uh, as water that hasn't been overtreated, all of these things combine in a, in a unique biological process that if those things are let, um, are allowed to interact in the most natural way possible, they will result in a, in a particular um, unique and special manifestation that can't be really at that level cannot be replicated anywhere else or by any other measure or any other method. Um, as soon as you start to say, okay, well, we've got, you know, 30 different cultivars that we're putting under this appellation, those interactions are going to be different for each, for each uh, genetic uh, selection. And they may all be great. Uh, you may want to, you may, but, but I think having meaningful appellations really does have to, to, not just include the way it was grown and where it was grown, but also what was grown. And I think that's, that's really important. Uh, and, and there may be some cultivars that would fit really well in an Appalachian in um, a part of Humboldt County and something else that would do really well in Sonoma County or in Southern California or whatever, wherever the Appalachian turned out to be. But 
uh, I agree that as soon as it starts to be the product of a, a whole bunch of external modifications to the the unique nature of where that is, uh, where where it's grown and, and what is in that present in that nature without a lot of manipulation, then you don't have a consistent, meaningful appellation anymore. I mean, I, according to the European uh, community, not only the French, there is no appellation without the terroir. There is no origin without the land and the climate. It's very simple. That's the whole yeah. name of the game. Now it's like, how can we make different style of, uh, of appellation? Uh, it's more a standardization toward quality, but it's like, that's, uh, that's another story altogether. Appellation, it's a marketing tool. Why? Because there is somebody, imagine somebody in south of France that can grow lavender in a mecca of lavender that is so unique, that is an appellation d'origine controlée. It's like Roquefort. You make many blue cheese. There is one Roquefort. That dude can grow lavender in the middle of everybody and is so in tune with everything that is create uniqueness. That's, a, that's an appellation. That's that sense of dedication of being part of it. And that's a complicated biological interaction of all kinds of organisms, all kinds of signals that you really can't replicate anywhere else. And you know, this might be an urban myth, but it's a useful example, whether it's true or not. They say that if you get a start of sourdough, San Francisco sourdough, and you take it back home with you to Ohio or wherever, it just doesn't stay the same after a while because real San Francisco sourdough, part of what makes it unique and consistent is what's actually in the air in San Francisco. Um, that whether that's actually true or not, it would absolutely be true in a cannabis farm that um, it's not even just the water and the soil, it's, it's the air too. Maybe for cheese, for olive oil, for everything, it's the same story. It's like goodness, greatness as a point of origin. It's not really connected with you in America because you don't have that sense of uh, being close to the farmer because it's farming here has taken another dimension. For us in Europe, the farmer is every day down in the street. You know what I mean? It's like uh, they were risking their life in World War II to bring us the food. Our relation with a small farmer, I mean, there is only small farming. We don't have the space. I understand here it's difficult to think small when you have so much space, but it's not really the size. It's, it's that respect uh, toward nature and understanding where, uh, what it takes to grow something, basically. Yeah. You don't have that in your culture. Well, you know, as an example of that, Frenchie, just a quick story. I, uh, we were talking about chickens before. And I've, I love chickens and I've had chickens for a long time. And I gave a friend of mine a, a carton of eggs, all different colors. And she looked at it and said, what are these? I said, well, they're chicken eggs. And she said, I've never had eggs from a real chicken before. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and within a couple months, she had her own chickens too. She, she got chickens in her little yard in Long Beach. Got real chickens, huh? She real chickens. Yep. 
<laughs> Speaking of chickens, is anyone else using ducks for pest management at all? Yeah. We did it on the... Yeah. We had to, two Muscovies on a small scale just in my little backyard system, and it, it really put a dent in it, man. Muscovy ducks. Um, and also, they're really quiet as well, so they're not going to bother your neighbors, and they'll give you some eggs. I have uh, 25 Indian runners. And uh, ducks are mandatory on my property. I've uh, lost a lot of starts to a lot of starts to, to slugs. My property, I'm in the woods, <clears throat> as Mike was telling you, and, and uh, it's really wet. And so a lot of fucking slugs. And last year, I, I think I lost ha half my starts, which is the tune of a thousand or so to slugs. And, and yeah, and this year I lost my ducks over the winter. And so the slug population kind of bounced back up and, I started again when I got 25 um, that are about six weeks old and, and they crush it, dude. But um, I have like an acre. Of, I'm, in, I'm in Bellingham, Washington, right up by Canada on I-5. I'm in Gig Harbor. Yeah, Gig Harbor. Same, same setup, sort of setup, dude. It's fucking... My son pointed out a slug that was like eight inches long the other day. He's like, what is that? And I'm like, dude, that's a slug. He's like, that's a slug too? I'm like, yeah. I, I swear I've seen them bigger than that, man. Like just, right. just crawling on the side of my house, leper slugs. Like, ugh, it's disgusting. Big and those giant banana slugs further down in, in Humboldt, those big, giant, giant guys mm -hmm. that get you. Yeah, no, no bueno. D ducks are uh, pretty also, sweet, though. I mean, I just, I, I can't say enough about ducks because they don't fuck your shit up. Um, they eat a lot of the grains from the, from the grasses and stuff, uh, and they drop poop everywhere. They're just, and, and, awesome. and, and kind of in theme with the same talk about creating a, a like your own fucking terroir, like moving water and having duck water and, and living water moving through your garden, I think is a really cool feature that, that is under talked about, you know. There's a, there's a book called One Duck or at least a PDF. I don't know if it's a book, but it's uh, called One Duck Revolution. Kind of like, uh, I don't know, I think this. I think it's kind of a playoff words from another famous book or something, but one duck revolution. It talks about growing, uh, growing rice with starting the rice as seedlings with baby ducks, ducklings. And the, then the rice matures as the ducks mature and they have a symbiotic relationship. Huh. Very cool. We also have uh, Chris Trump just joined us uh, as well. Hey, Chris. What up, guys? How's it going? How's it going, Chris? It's what are you good. Up to? Yeah, hanging out in uh, beautiful weather in Idaho. Yeah, and one one straw revolution. That's what you're talking about, Kirk. Yeah, we're uh, we're growing all kinds of things out here, and it's nice. It's it's the right time to have seeds in the ground, and everything's jumping. It's fun. I've been thinking about what have ducks. You been up to, what have you been up to these last few months? You know, I call it the slug life. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> no, nah, it's 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 been good uh, connecting with people um, online and and through you know that kind of communication. A lot of time with family, and then um, working with some farmers to you know. Um, start land i'm working with a grass hay farmer um that's um kind of rodeo horse training expert and they have 
about 100 acres to do grass hay and so we're remediating their land and um, Monday I'll be making 20,000 pounds of IMO4 which is a, a microbially rich thing based on your indigenous microbes the terroir like you were talking about a little earlier Frenchie and um, Dale yeah so we're doing that I'm, I'm gonna head out to uh, a project Josh and I were doing in, in uh, Colorado on um, on the 15th and just see how that's going it looks really pretty and then I'm gonna head back over to Hawaii um, work with my family farm in July um, some projects there and things are going really well so yeah just I don't know this last few months you know uh, slow motion hanging with family getting my workout wrestling with I got five little people and uh yeah, it's been good, but definitely stationary and, and slow moving, slug life. <laughs> Sounds good. So, so is anyone else here aside from Frenchie working on a book or any writing projects during the, the slowdown period? Well, I, I can't, it's definitely not a book, but I write blogs that are too long. And I just posted one yesterday on plantlaw.com. But this one wasn't about uh, uh, plants or IP. It was, um, it was, and I'm not intending to steer the discussion this way, but this was about um, George Floyd and ending police uh, racism and brutality. Uh, I think it's an important topic. Anybody wants to go look at my blog, I, that, that something I wrote. And then I wrote just before that, what I intended as a blog post um, on the founder effect and um, the fact that having a lot of varieties of cannabis is not the same as having genetic diversity and how to bring in genetic diversity from land races and from seed collections and things like that, but also how to do it in a way that's ethical based on where those things that really came from and taking into account the Nagoya protocol, which uh, aims to make sure that uh, things that come from, uh, what's it called, traditional knowledge and indigenous um, uh, peoples and locations, that when there's a lot of value that comes from there, that some of that value finds its way back there. So that was going to go on my blog, but it got picked up by a publication. I'm not sure when it's going to come out, so I, I probably shouldn't say which. Uh, well, I think I can. I think it's coming out in, in cannabis uh, business times, I'm pretty sure. Not sure when, though. And I had a, I had to run into a similar problem in Zimbabwe. So in Zimbabwe, they were all super happy to have us register U.S., EU, or Canadian cultivars. But I, you know, if I had if went and found and sourced some stuff from within Zimbabwe from some actual Zimbabwean growers uh, up in, in Yanga and some of the traditional growing areas, I couldn't legally. I there was no pathway to legally register traditional cultivars. And that's wrong. Like, why is there no pathway for that? This is something that's been growing in your own country for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And this is something that I think is also a problem with the legislative bills that you have to have preservation for your, your, your own genetics that you can be proud of and brand around your country, around your, uh, and, and around your own, you know, soil type and whatever else, you know, and, and, and a lot of countries aren't taking advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, we definitely need to do some policy work on that to um, uh, to make it so that 
I think you know that the aim of saying you can't register it is probably it's it's probably a misguided goal. Well, it's probably a misapplied uh, uh, um, execution of a good goal. The good goal being we're not going to have people come in and appropriate this stuff and take it off and get rich with it. But the fact is, if you can't register at all and you can't do do anything commercial with it, then you're the, the people that really could get paid from that aren't getting paid. And so um, that I you know that's that's what the Nagoya protocol is all about, but it's, it's complicated. And of course the U S is not a member of it. Uh, Europe is, but figuring out how to, how to do that right is an important part of being able to bring in um, what you could call exotic genetics or traditional genetics or diverse genetics and <laughs> have it actually get to people and benefit them, but still have some of that value get back to the ind indigenous uh, origins. It's literally national treasure that we don't use. And Have yes. you heard about uh, phenotypic plasticity, developmental plasticity, like every living organism has an epigenetic memory? I change my DNA for the next generation, or uh, a, a memory, you change your fucking uh, phenotype right now when you're alive, okay? And the more cultivated you are, the least powerful you are into adapting, mm -hmm. literally. So yeah. uh, we have such a fucked up library of genetic that it would be maybe time to clean up and to go back and respect the laundress that gave us everything we have, up to now we, have, we don't know what we did. we did. We didn't know what we were doing. Now we know better. Maybe it's time to calculate that a lot of stuff that we have, it's really worthless. It will go nowhere. And there is treasure into it that we have to preserve. And it's starting with laundresses that we have to do it. You go into a foreign country, the first things you need to teach them, it's not to fucking grow CBD or wedding cake or whatever is grown in Canada or wherever. It's like, I want to smoke Colombian. I want to smoke South African grown in South Africa. You know what I mean? It's like the Durban poison from my body in Durban. Well, I have never tried the Durban poison like that ever. Huh? It's different, you know That's what a, I mean? If, if we don't grow like a Punta Roja in Mexico. Gold in Santa Marta or Punta Roja in the mountains, it's, it's so special to yeah. go and do it. Trust me, it's so special. And uh, it's never lost on me for a second that it's really, really important to conserve all the native streams, but to see them and taste them in their own environment is something else. Like I fell in love with Santa Marta Gold a long time, 25 years ago, you know? And it was 16 weeks to flower inside and absolutely the most heavenly perfume. And I swore one day I would go back there and grow some. And it was actually harder to find than you think when you get back there four years ago. And, uh, but once you source enough, you start finding things that you knew were just like the original and, and then you work to restore them because a lot of that got diluted too. When you think of all the people that show up, they go out and visit the 
people with traditional production areas, but they bring in a bunch of new seed. And that is like salting the fields for anybody that comes behind them, you know? But it's, you don't want to see the real native varieties lost, you know? It's really something, and they're so distinctive all over. And even for Colombia, there's so many different ones. You know, I'd maybe heard of four before I went there, but you know, four years later, I can probably think of 10. And there's more than that, I'm sure. But there's, there's real diversity throughout. And even in that country, especially, there's 11 different climactic zones as they classify agriculturally. And the things that are acclimatized to one zone don't necessarily thrive in the others, you know? So even though you think, well, I'm at this great uh, equatorial latitude, but the altitude counts for everything as well. So it's really a massive difference. You've got mountaintop glaciers and oceanfront deserts and everything in between. So it's really neat to try all this stuff and to try it in the various you know, regions, which I'm getting to do as well. So it's like, but that's, I'm trying stuff from India, from Africa, everything from around the world, but with a real focus on equatorial belt and trying to make, you know, new, and useful lines out of those. But as uh, the first step is always just the conservation, small population seedings and cabinets of each of the ones that, that you have collected because you, you can maintain a massive gene bank of them that way. And it's really important to me to have that as, as a palette, you know, as a painter, it's all the colors in your palette, you know? So it's really, I think so the source from the land races and just to follow the latest fashions and crazes and the high times cup bud isn't necessarily all that because some of us even miss the old flavors that the kids today have never tried you know so it's interesting so, so on that on that note that's a question i'm dying to ask this panel um so what terpene profiles or terps or or flavors or or whatever uh, really are found in those 10, 12, 16, 18, 22, 24 week cultivars that, uh, you know, maybe we grow for outdoor for ourselves, but you simply do not see on the commercial and, you know, they're on these quick turn cultivars. What, what, what specifically, cause you, this is, this group actually has a really good idea on a lot of stuff. Cause I know there's definitely a lot of stuff that I don't smell anymore at all that I definitely remember from high school and, and vice versa. And I'm sure there's other stuff that uh, I remember from growing when I was younger that took, you know, we cut down in Pennsylvania right before it would snow in the beginning of November and uh, allegedly. And, um, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, what, what specifically uh, as far as turf profiles, uh, does, does this panel, uh, uh, you know, comes off the top of their head as far as, uh, you know, those longer profiles, because I'm sure some of those sesquiterpenes take more than, than those quick turns are even, even capable of, correct? I can't speak to uh, some of the older stuff, but I can speak to some of the stuff that I've been running in the last 10 years that, and I can just say that like uh, the, the sesquiterpenes are both in the shorter term varieties and in the longer term. Like I have a lot of seven to eight week varieties that are done, you know, like that piho and, and that piho smokes all the way through to the very, but yeah, I mean, the last bit of it, you're just kind of like wanting to crunch it down like a muffin, you know? <laughs> I think of them as high notes, those, those stuff that flowers super slow, 
And unfortunately, I don't have enough of a lab to do terpene testing yet. We're just getting cannabinoids for analysis. But the uh, I hope to add terp testing real soon. We are out in the jungle, and even when we send to accredited labs, of which there's two there for uh, cannabinoid testing, and neither of them give you terp reports yet. So the equipment's just not there yet. There's no good labs in Colombia really, like really dedicated to cannabis analysis. I, I, I have not smoked anything here, even remotely close to a naturally grown tropical plant. It's like, Amen. I don't, I don't think, not I don't even think those plants are, are going through a, a light change because there is 15 minute difference between winter and summer. Yeah. Instead of six o'clock, the, the sunrise at 6.15 and set at 6.15, oh, yeah. there is no light difference. Those yeah. plants, they just flower when they have reached the peak of their vegetative states. Can I ask you, Frenchy, like when you say, when you make that statement, is, would you, is that like run across the flavor profiles like? You know, that like when I think of, I'm inexperienced with equatorials, right? Like I, I grow mostly short varietals. Um, and, and so when I think of longer term varietals, I think of more fruities and hazes. And I don't think of like the danky, stinky stuff that I, you know what I mean? I've had some equatorials that weren't nice flavors, like Indonesians. I really don't like them. I grew some, <laughs> I think they were 16 or 18 week ones. And and they really had no aesthetic value for flavor to anybody, I wouldn't think. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they were kind of off-putting. Like, just nobody liked them. Like, something akin to onions, <laughs> you know? But that, that, that is not a perfume screen, that's for sure. But uh, maybe in Indonesia, it would have been better than my Swiss greenhouse. But still, I saw other... You know, equatorial thin leaves that were narrow leaves, let's say, that were just absolutely divine. The best tasting herb and and the uplifting high that just last. Like even I have some, you know, slightly stale Punta Roja that I'd grown with just hundred percent native earth and pond water. And I had some scrappy popcorn of it sitting in my freezer when I came back down there one time. And the nice thing in Colombia is everybody's allowed 20 plants personal. So that's better than Canada's four, maybe, but not if your neighbors can see it bullshit, you know? And some provinces, not even that. But uh, so Colombia thought that was pretty cool in their constitution, they're allowed 20 plants personal. So you've got no excuse not to have a few jars around. But that. Uh, just I love it and it was actually the first plant I ever harvested buds from in my life it was probably 89 I guess and it was from Jamaican seed but I never saw that plant again until I got to Colombia and was in a region known for Puntarola and said is that Puntarola and it was the first plant I'd ever grown but I didn't know it at the time and uh, that flavor he just wasn't really around on the tone. Once in a while, you'd see it in some really pink-haired stuff. You think, oh, this has a little of that smell like that first stuff I grew. But boy, oh boy, once I grew some down there in the, the prairies, 
the sun down there at three degrees off the equator, that's about 370 meters altitude. The sun, when you're walking around in the middle of the day, it feels like a weight on you. It is so intense that it's, uh, you know, I laugh that people think indoor can be as good. It's so much stronger. <laughs> and it just blows my mind how you know, plant expresses. And then I take modern stuff and planted out there. Anything I would expect to flower eight weeks indoors to a flower outside in six. And rock hard. No pistols left. Just swollen and done. But but you gotta find the ones that don't finish that fast because otherwise they don't get any size. So you know, looking at the equatorials and the equatorial hybrids is amazing. And some of the true equatorials I could put seed in the ground with no supplemental light in May and come back and harvest them the first week of December. <laughs> they would just grow and grow. They would be about nine feet tall and uh, a very delicate, high-note, perfumey herd. And they weren't even super high THC, but uh, still, just through the growth pattern, worth having in the collection. You know, you've got to look at the things you need, and it's sometimes it's right in between two. I know. I always remember listening to Frenchie talk about people growing in the Himalayas as well and planting in the fall. Uh, and, and you know, I you know, imagine people planting in the fall in the states. I know uh, that's something I had never heard of until you had told right. me, uh, Frenchie. Well, well I hadn't heard that either. But... In Colombia, all year round. I want to ask about this, like. Um the vigor I see in volunteers, um, it blows my mind. You know, I, like I'm working in my greenhouse, so I know the plants that these volunteers are coming from, obviously. And yeah. I have seedlings that I started from the same stock right next to them in trays and watching these volunteers just blast past them. Let I mean, blast. Me you, this is the truth. And this is so important. People gotta know that. You plant the seed where you want it to grow, best case scenario. Because if it can shoot deep roots down before the top goes up, it eliminates a huge amount of watering, labor, but not just that, it grows better without the disturbances. It's amazing. I had to show my people down there too, because they were in the, you know, out of legality reasons where you can't grow from seed, but you can only grow from a registered cultivar, which is you know, a unique cutting. So you'd have to have mothers and cuttings just because of bureaucracy. But I would say, let's just put a row of seeds out beside them, just so I can show you. And don't even water them. And they would come up and grow side by side, like effortlessly beside everything else. And they would be stunned, you know? Think, look, it's so easy to grow from seed. A lot of people have lost sight of that. You can put a seed right where you want it to grow. And if you know the conditions are good, the soil's decent, It'll grow better than all the transplanting in the world. You know, just put it where you want it and let it grow. Because that top root goes down undisturbed and it'll go down deep before the plant grows up. And then they, when they come up, they look like cardboard leaves almost. They're just so thick and established. It's way nicer than trees. Like sometimes it's, you gotta it's just, I mean, it's, it's, I'm just, I'm observing that. And so I appreciate you confirming that you know it's i'm a four-year veteran of growing outdoors right so i'm mainly an indoor person and so observing that and seeing that i'm just like pushing myself off later and later now you know and like kind of fall like i feel like i'm gonna start following that 
kind of traditional tomato path where it's like I won't I'll probably plant my seeds eventually you know, next year, you know, it, June, June 1st yeah no, if there's a winter over what is a volunteers but a plant that is so well adapted to your place that it can grow without your help it's the yeah. beginning of an heirloom you want to protect that you you need to create condition where you have actually volunteers popping. You make a bed outside so that it gets a full winter condition. You just protect from bird and shit. It's like rodents that they eat the seeds. And whatever pop, you pay attention. Whatever thrive, you fucking breed with it. Because that's a local girl or a local boy. If, if it can thrive without your help, it becomes local. You want this into your genetic pool. Yeah. So that you need to be able to, uh, to, to, uh, to create volunteers to be able to breed. 100%. That's actually where I was, go where I was, my brain was going with it was like that that's how I should be planting is in the fall. I should broadcast my seed. And, and what comes up in the spring is what I plan to work with and weed down from there rather than doing this nice, finely cultivated, you know, popping of my seeds and, and, and you know, babying them through. I'm not, you know, if I'm breeding, I'm looking for strength. I'm not looking for a huge crop. I'm looking for yeah. the, the outliers. Leave them the whole winter outside. I mean, don't you put them in the fridge between before you... Uh... I thought about that too. So that I thought that's where my brain went. Yeah. Right? It was like, why they not put them in the fridge? Be, yeah. They need to be cold. They will right. start popping only when the ground is, the soil is getting warmer. So let nature do, do it. They do better than you. Agreed. So all all plants are like that. All, all <laughs> plants, the, the, the better they do, you know, unaffected, un, unhelped. Uh, the better they're taking nutrients from the soil they're in. It's, uh, it's across the board and in all plants. And uh, when I look for a plant to use for plant fertilizer, I'm looking for the thing that's lush and rich and the bugs don't touch it because it's taking that soil and these conditions and making the most of it. It's killing it. And so all plants. And so those are going to be producing these complex, you know, flavors and 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 uh and smells and uh it's because they're they're thriving they're thriving there rather than struggling and if something's struggling it's you know like any of us if we're sick we're we're not we're not showing our a game i love that in hawaii you know I, that's a lot of a lot of people grow like that just just seeds in the ground and you know uh stick it somewhere where no one's gonna find it and come back nine months later you never checked on it once and you know that's it <laughs> that's the way that's the beautiful i love that gorilla that's how the first five years i grew was just gorilla like that where you gotta go you know mix up the soil you want go out and put the plants you want and and you come back hope it's there you know your only problem with you guys you put only sensimia you don't leave the boy leave the boy if you leave the boy, nobody can eradicate after you. It's oh, like if they had done this in the mountain here in Norcal, it would be like the Himalaya. Nobody would be able to eradicate those plants. 
Okay, can you guys also talk about? Can you guys? Gorillas are really like, you know, kind of the staple. I grew up in Siskiyou County, and in Humboldt County, in California, and you know, back in the day, the gorilla grow was really, uh, it was really the staple. It was way more common than I than I feel like it is now. And you, that's what they would look for was places that they could just plant, and and leave it, and strains that they could just plant and leave. And they just overplant, you know, they would plant, you know, just tons and tons and tons of seeds and whatever, whatever they got was what they got. And that was a very successful method for years and years. Seeds them out. So I had a, I had a question for, for this panel as well. Do, does anyone here want to touch on the fact that, and this is something that it was newer to me until it was roster Jeff. Uh, shout out to uh, a Grow From The Heart podcast who talked about this quite a bit. It's something that I've only experienced smoking his stuff about pollinated terpene profiles and cannabinoids versus unpollinated and how that there is actually a difference in the, the profiles in the exact same cuts between a pollinated and unpollinated. Um, does anyone here have any info on that? Maybe Mike or anyone else? Are you, are you saying... Like uh, the, the 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 female flower pollinated versus unpollinated. The horm the hormones from the pollination changing the terpene expression. Yeah, much. And then yeah. you know it changing the wall the wall. It's like the plant produces trichome to capture pollen mainly and to protect itself from predator and climatic condition. Okay, uh, it's like it's because it's a sensimia because you don't put the male that part of the production is intensified. Okay, and it's like uh, getting pretty before going and having sex in the city. Okay, it's nice, you're hot, you're gonna bring a lot of boy and shit, but once you're pollinated, you're a mom. You protect the next generation. It's not fucking around anymore. You know what I mean? It becomes. I'm a mother. I protect the next generation. You don't fuck with me anymore. You know what I mean? And there is studies that show that there is an anti. Uh, uh, there is more trichomes that are formed especially around the around the seed pod and the there is an intensification of the production of terp and cannabinoid because it goes into not capturing pollen anymore it's done now into i protect my seed from anything big time and like the plant goes into uh, overdrive. It's like it's it's part of the of the cycle of the flower that you don't have, and it bring it bring a lot on the table. Huh? Have you had a chance, Frenchie, to run side by side, like wash uh, a pollinated batch versus an unpollinated batch? Not not yet, no. So I've uh, done it a lot. Uh, <laughs> I've checked. Okay. Because Can I've someone listening to the show? Can someone listening to the show, please, for the love of God, get Frenchie some pollinated and unpollinated of the same cup, please, in the near future? There was the thing I loved about seed crops is when they're doing a seed production run, 
I was keeping every resin gland in that room, you know, or that greenhouse. I would grow full greenhouses and a sweet tea smooth seed and say, I am keeping every resin gland in that greenhouse. And it just, that was definitely the, one of the major perks of me working with seed because there was no, the seed was the business, the resin was personal. And because it was always from seeded bud, the, uh, almost always, because I would always have test runs where I did comparative stuff and have some sense to trial. But still, it would all end up as hash because that's what I love to do with it too. And but seeded, but there's I did, I've never quantified the difference, but I've always felt that it was a little different. The hash made from the seeded bud versus its uh, virgin sisters, you know. So when you when you look at the uh chemical composition of the seeds obviously there's it's it, you, a high high percentage of hemp seed oil so chemically speaking and enzymatically upon pollination there there's a chemical hormone shift in the plant um where they actually start producing mon mono and diglycerides which are essentially fatty acid chains chains of carbons that either are one, two, three chains of carbons in a row. Now, the in, within the trichomes, smaller sections of those chains of carbons that are based on glycerin molecules are bound together using hormones into those beautiful things that we come to love, that which are terpenes. And within those terp classes, different classes of terpenes are subclasses, one of which exclusively found in cannabis is a tricyclic or dicyclic, bicyclic terpenoids, which are the cannabinoids. So upon pollination, you are going to start to see the plant start shifting some metabolic process into producing those mono and diglycerides that go into these seeds. But the um, obviously the plant still wants to protect those seeds. So it'll continue to produce resin, resin that those resin glands are going to continue to metabolize the terpenoid precursors into terpenes and into the cannabinoids. Um, but one of the things that you know seed breeders end up doing is they they don't just take their plant to that week eight where it's ready to be harvested. Right, right. You so have to take totally it a couple yellow weeks. And in the yeah, you got to take it a couple weeks further until the seeds are. I believe the term's cracking. Cool or uh, starting to come out of the, the seed heads, right? So what, what that ends up doing is you end up with a slightly uh, later mat maturation at harvest on your uh, cannabinoids. And analytically speaking, you, I, I have seen higher percentages of uh, some of the activated and uh, CBN and mostly, mostly TAC converting into, or TACA converting into THC. Um, in seed crops, um, terpenes, they're fairly similar. I have seen some interesting results in um, some of the larger molecular weight terpenes being later, uh, higher later in flower. Um, but uh, you say terpenes are, are in potency are similar or in uh, availability? So you, you have to think of those those trichromes, you know, the, the stipe cells at the base of the trichomes that are creating those precursors that then bind together to create the cannabinoids, they're chemical factories. They're going to continue to produce as long as 
you know, your plant is growing, it's photosynthesizing, it's producing, pushing sugars down into the soil that feed the endo and ecto bacteria and uh, fungi that then provide the minerals and terpenoid precursors that flow, uh, flow up the phloem to your, not only your seeds, but also the trichromes. Right, so it's it's a chemical factory. You, if you can, if you keep that factory running longer, it's going to synthesize, continue to synthesize, not only terpenes and cannabinoids, um, but what you know upon pollination, you are going to also see that kind of shift towards the production of mono and diglycerides, mono di and triglycerides, specifically within the seed. Um, you know, for many of us being hash makers, we're not doing an extraction. So those mono, di, and triglycerides aren't going to get pulled out of your extract. That that when you actually wash it in a solventless extraction, you can isolate those gland heads um, and not have the oils come out of the seeds. I, ideally, obviously, we're trying to collect those seeds before it goes through any sort of processing. But you know, there there are going to be errant seeds that end up into the compost and hopefully get recycled into the next generation of of uh, cultures. So, um, oh yeah. <laughs> so what uh, what does everyone see as like the biggest challenge going into the rest of the year? I guess aside from uh, from legislative stuff uh, directly, uh, uh, is there any other big challenges? I know uh, it's getting really hard to source a lot of common grow supplies. Um, are you guys having the same issue? Is I would guess that most people are bought up, bought up. Like, you know, I, I, when March hit, I was, you know, I, everyone I talked to was like, Oh yeah, I just bought trucks and trucks of shit, you know, so much shit, oh, yeah. you know, ready to go. And, and I was the same way. I was like, that hit. And I was like, Amazon has been my best friend. Um, I hate to say it, you know, I mean, I'm not a, a fucking, but it has, it, you know, it, it comes to me. Um, good reason to grow your own what's that it's a good reason to make your own inputs yes sir once you get a nice compost pile going you don't end up needing much else right and that's that's why i was <laughs> i have a huge hog compost and I, I needed to get some growth some, some pots and a couple things here and there and you know you always need to get a new uh and you spray one or two or whatever fucking always <laughs> yeah but 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 really once you get your biology going on your inner system it's it's not that much you know yeah like you could do you could figure ways around all the other stuff right well i only i only watered these twice in their entire life <laughs> hell yeah well, that looks beautiful well, dude by the way I've, I've never got a chance to compliment you on that it looks very fucking cool dude Oh, thanks, man. Marty, I haven't you talked to you in a while. How you doing? Do you want to explain your your side by side you got going on there? <laughs> sure. Um, so I actually I have a number of experiments that are going on sort of simultaneously in here, but over here, so I have two plants. I call them just don't fucking touch them plants, which is this one right here, and it has nothing but castings in the dual root zone from my red worm bin nothing else there's not even aeration and i get this question all the time you know what what happens 
And, and so I decided those are going to be my two experiments. So that's that one there and that one over there. And I, I literally haven't touched them since they've been in the system. You can see all the dead leaves are still hanging on them and everything is just there. And uh, so those, <clears throat> I watered them when I transplanted them out of the cloner into the pots that they're in and then put them in the system. And all of these were, were only watered twice in there since they came out of the cloner. So, uh, so this one's castings only. And then this row has varying levels of, uh, of potassium. And this level has, or this one has varying levels of nitrogen. Uh, so that's kind of what I was experimenting with different soil mixes. And then I'm going to go with, uh, and also different size pots, as you can see down here, I've got a few different size pots. So I was kind of messing around with different mixes and different pots and kind of what I wanted to do. And then once this run comes down in about a week or so, um, I'll replace it with all the ones that did the best and probably, um, you know, mixed all that out. I'll probably run a couple more side-by-sides in the next one um, as well, but they'll be slightly closer together to try to dial them in and, uh, and probably do the same thing with a couple of different strains. So that's my little fun. I'm trying to, trying to determine what level nutrients uh, play in development. So uh, as opposed to microbes, you know, we've all, you know, been involved in that. And so I do want to eventually do a run. I know we were talking earlier about planting directly where you want the plant to grow. And I do want to do a run from seed where I plant directly into an existing dual root zone pot and have it grow from there because I think that could be a lot of fun. And I have, I have sprouted plants that way, but I never finish them. I always got moved or whatever. And so I'm finally yeah, in my new home. Is unavoidable. What's that? Transplant shock is unavoidable when you're transplanting. You can do a great job and right. minimize it, but there's still transplant shock, you know? Right, in recovery time, right? Like, I mean, we always yeah. knock on auto flowers for, oh, you can't transplant them. Like, they're the only plants that get transplant shock. But I feel like, you know, it's just that, uh, you know, obviously don't transplant autos. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that regular uh, plants don't have, you know, you don't think about the time that it takes for them to recover. You just go, oh, I'm going to veg it for another week and don't really think about the time that you lost to do that. So I'm hoping to work with Mr. Green. Outside, you use way less water. It's not going to make as much of a difference in containers inside, obviously. But outside, you use really, really less water, dramatically so. Because transplanted stuff without a drip line would be dead in uh, two hours, you know? To be, uh, it's got to stay moist and it, it's got a, ball, a root ball rather than a long, deep root, you know? A long, deep yeah. root means you don't have to put out irrigation half the time. It's amazing. Right. Just direct sowing in the field. Different story inside. The least transplanting is often good, but you know, do what works for you for sure. And, and as you are, experiment. That's the fun part, you know? That's the only way you ever move forward. Yeah, and I think I'm just lazy too. You know, who wants to upplant pots all the time? Or, you know, I don't even like watering them. That's why I, you know, that's why I that's built why an aquaponic system to start with. I agree. That's exactly it. I've got a shit back and I hate lugging pots and soil around. I just wasn't into it at all. And I like the idea of just shaking the rocks off and pulling them out, you know? And it was, it became so easy when you set it up right. 
it, that was the fun part. You spent more time staring at your reservoir, which was an aquarium, than you did looking at the garden. Oh, yeah, you barely go in. You have it sealed up, CO2 and glass window. I'd look in there, and I wouldn't go in if I didn't have to. I kept it clean. And uh, there was a reservoir outside full of plants and fish and eels and crabs and shrimp and suckers and you name it. And you'd spend all the time getting high and looking at the aquarium. <laughs> it was beautiful. Awesome. Well, I thought we run, uh, before we wrap up the show, I figured we could go over some stats on uh, the 200 episodes that Marty and I have done. Uh, we've had uh, 55,611 members in the Facebook group. We have uh, a Facebook group slash AP Canna. Uh, over on the podcast, we've had uh, over half a million listens on the audio version, uh, 209,000 uh, listens on SoundCloud. Uh, uh, four, almost 5,000 listens on Spotify, over almost 8,000 subscribers on YouTube, uh, and over 771,000 views uh, on YouTube as well. Compri and the, in total, the podcast so far has had over 430 or 437 hours, seven minutes and 16 seconds, not counting this episode in terms of uh, hours of content that we've put out there to help educate the community, the number one enemy of our of the cannabis industry is education and lack thereof. So uh, the more we can all work together to help fight that, the better. So uh, thanks everybody here for, well for helping being part of that in your individual ways. Yeah, thank you everyone. Really appreciate everyone coming out. Really cool. Yeah, man. Good yeah, job, so, man. <laughs> I wanted to give everyone a chance to, to plug their stuff. Uh, I did, Dale had to run, so let me plug him real quick as uh, breedersbest.com, plantlaw.com, and plantandplanet.com. Um, uh, Wade, would you like to go next and mention the, the, the groups that you work with? Uh, it is uh, harlequin.org. Uh, it's a little bit dated. It's a year since I visited that, but um, uh, you can see some of the stuff that's going on in Utah at dragonflyut.com. That's a, um, it's our, uh, yeah, that's the activity we're doing in, in Utah. And yeah, there's actually, there will be some more, uh, a bunch more educational things coming up this year from us Parklands. So uh, I look forward to uh, sharing more of that with folks. Thank you. Wonderful. And I know you've also been doing a lot of work with Dragonfly over on, uh, on Bubble Man's channel as well with their education series. Yes. No, I'm, uh, I, I care very deeply about the Dragonfly Earth family and um yeah, um, uh, we're looking forward to uh, defining more clearly what it is we're doing in the Dragonfly Earth family. And uh, there'll be a lot of news coming out about that pretty soon. Um, yeah, much love. And uh, damn, man, great job on, the, on this podcast and the number of people that you've reached out to. Because yeah, I think it's really true. Education is sorely needed in this work. Um, on so many levels, uh, yeah, and that's all I got. And and again, great panel this evening. Thank you. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Uh, thanks, Frenchie, for for joining us. Why don't you tell everybody how to find you? And uh, I'm sure you'll be back at your classes again here uh, once they they let us all out of the boxes that, that they keep us in. 
Yeah, I mean, if you want, if you want to see the workshop, you have it on YouTube. Uh, otherwise, on my uh, on my website, in the article page, the last six articles for Word, it's a written uh, version of the article of the workshop, and you have the science behind everything I do, which I think is really important. If you understand why I do things then you'll be able to bring it further than I am, instead of just doing the same than me, you know what I mean? And otherwise, it's, uh, it's YouTube, it's uh, Instagram, where I, uh, I really share most of my, uh, of my idea and, uh, and knowledge, or I give the input to bring the people wherever I, uh, I want them to go to, uh, to check it out. Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Um, and uh, what about you, Steve? Oh, I got nothing to plug, but thanks for having me. It's great to, it's great to see the interest in aquaponics. I mean, it, uh, it was just something I fell in love with, and I thought, you know, heady people will get it. The heady people will get it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you're, you're carrying the torch, man. It's beautiful. Keep up the uh, I hope to twist Frenchie's arm into coming out and, and uh, making some awesome stuff in our uh, solventless lab with some aquaponic stuff here at some, uh, once, the, uh, once the, the virus breaks. I wish I could come to you. <laughs> well, you can come down for a visit. We'll do something for sure. Good. <laughs> uh, what about you, Chris? Sorry, I muted myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I just uh, proposed the idea that if there was a... Uh, there was a PhD in aquaponics cannabis. Uh, Steve, you would be the uh, one of the lead professors in that, uh, in in teaching that. And uh, currently, the, the, I don't think there is a, a PhD in in cannabis uh, production and in, in dual root zone uh, aquaponics. But I can say uh, we have a, a forum here. You know, enough uh, brilliant minds and uh, industry leaders that we we can. Uh, I think I think we should award you a. Uh, you know, an honorary PhD of uh, all, uh, this this uh, world you 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 play in, and uh, all the knowledge you're sharing. So, for what it's worth, you know, I think uh, I think you got doctor's status in my book. I at least want a certification. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm uh, you know um, terrible with uh, websites, but I got some people to help, and so going to continue um, to kind of add more content. I guess that's where I'm going to shift is I have a little bit of time this summer to um, put content on naturalfarming.co and just really help people kind of wrap their heads around what it is to produce their own um, inputs and, and take care of the microbes in their soil. And um, yeah, and then uh, YouTube always uh, continue to put stuff there finally. And that's uh, just search Chris Trump on YouTube. 
and uh, you can always hit me up on social media. Um, Instagram is at Soil Stewart. But yeah, appreciate you, Steve, and uh, fun stuff you're doing. Well, thanks for all the awesome content you put out there for for teaching people how to do KNF around the world. I I can't tell you how many people I, I gave your YouTube channel to while I was to while I was in Zimbabwe. Uh, so <laughs> um, I give it to people all the time. We get questions about KNF all the time. So. Oh yeah. Cool. What about you, Josh? Um. I just want to also like build you up, Steve and Marty. Um, I may be the longest listener to this show. Um, I was like searching aquaponics, this aquaponics, that um, in, in the era of, you know, 2010. And so every day, so I, like anything that would come up that was new, you know, basically from 2008 to 2012 in aquaponics, I knew of. Uh, within a couple of days and so I was I've been watching you guys forever and it's it's a beautiful thing you've done um, I'm very stoked that I got to be a part of it for the time I got I was I've been you know spent on it and um, you guys have spread so much information and and been so diehard about it and so I just want to commend both of you guys for for what you do and um, and and everybody else that's been involved too you know Roger and um Mr. Mean Jeans and everybody else, you know, you've had a lot of different people here and there on the show, but, but the two of you have held it down. And, and uh, so, yeah, good work, dude. Both of you guys. Thanks, uh, man. Yeah. I, I put on a conference, the regenerative organic cannabis cultivation conference, um, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. That's cool too. Which was born on this show. I heard it was really good. Born it on. was born on this show. It actually was born on this show too. You know, so that's that's you know that's a really important thing to 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 recognize that um, Leighton and I met on this show, and um, that connection happened, and we started the the conferences that, that touched a lot of lives through that. So, and the conference, I'm, I'm out of breath because I'm 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 walking with chicken feed. <laughs> I know that yeah. conference definitely changed my life in a lot of ways, and I think uh, a lot of people on this panel as well. Yep. Yeah, so many recurring guests, you know, just can't thank them enough for just donating your time. Like, you know how valuable it is. Um, and so just appreciate it. And any answers you gave anybody and shared, I mean, literally for free, you know, it's uh, and, and to Steve for lining literally like 99.9% .9 of our guests up to, to show up and from the early days of like, I'm going to spam emails to random people and see if they'll show up. To, uh, to networking with people at events and meeting, you know, some people on this panel, uh, just tons of hours that, uh, that I really benefited from just in personal knowledge and getting to, you know, ask a plethora of different experts questions just for my, you know, uh, my own personal knowledge. So uh, just thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. And thanks everyone for all of your your support. Uh, Marty and I initially met. We we just were disagreeing on a forum on on how to grow on aquaponics, and then we realized we were the only two people that were able to have a high level conversation enough to like have that disagreement. Uh, and then we soon became good friends. And then we had a guy that kept picking on us, telling us you couldn't grow weed in aquaponics. So we started yeah. a show. 
to prove to them to put out education so that they could not say that they couldn't do it. And then it turned into including regenerative soil and living soil. And we just started including more and more of the community that were, you know, aligned in a similar way in terms of trying to make things more sustainable and regenerative in their own way, maybe not necessarily with aquaponics, maybe it'd be, um, you know, uh, uh, regenerative soil or the Dem Pure movement or, or whatever the different, you know, niches are in the group, but we're all kind of on the same, uh, you know, we, sometimes there's a little bit of infighting and goofiness, but we're all in the same way where we're trying to get away from that, you know, uh, uh, chemical crap production and, and, and get away from the mineral salts and get away from the the factory farms and, and uh, you know, the large scale indoor factories that you've seen fail over and over again in the Canadian market, um, <laughs> spectacularly in some cases. Uh, so, um, and, and I'm sure once, uh, once the third, you know, once you start seeing uh, production done more heavily in South America and Africa, you know, they're going to get a really big wake up crawl, but you know what, the craft growers that are growing in their local community are still going to have their support and they're not really going to be affected when you have some of these larger international stuff, you know, there's still always going to be a place for that local grower to have that high end product and, and, uh, um, you know, it, it, you know, it's really cool to see all the different aspects on the show and, and all the different ways that you see, you know, people doing sustainability on all different scales from, you know, six plants all the way up to uh, how many are you doing over there, Steve? I think you have the biggest grow of everyone here. Well, we do 8,000 plants a hectare on average. Some plants closer, some further, but on average, probably 8,000 plants a hectare. Yeah, so. And we turn those over basically every two months even six weeks at six weeks that's eight crops a year but we do rotate crops and put in just leave fallow time we plant crotillaria in between crops at peanuts party it's huge yeah, little rotation yeah yeah, oh. yeah so and then uh roger uh, you've been with the show for for three years i think uh, after marty you're the longest uh, co-host uh Thanks for every, all the stuff that you've done, Roger. I tell you what, um, I, I'll tell the story real quickly. I, I run an I love growing marijuana.com. I had a great uh, moderator that I met that I was watching him and he was so such a great help and inspiration to everybody um, on the forum. And he was doing dual root zone aquaponics and it got me real interested. And he also used to come on the show and give away stuff from his store for free. You know, his name is, uh, well, we call him Dummy or Aquaponic Dummy. And he's up in Maine. And uh, we, we haven't seen him much in a while. He's had some issues. But uh, he, he, we were sitting there talking, him and I, because all my, my staff and I talk on the phone. And we do video chats and all that. So we keep up and, like, we're friends instead of just an administrator and a bunch of moderators and stuff. And, and uh, we were talking on the phone, having this great conversation one night because we got to be great friends. And, uh, and he goes, oh, the... The, the invite, the, I just got the email from Steve to do the podcast. I said, oh, well, damn. Okay. Well, yeah, I know you love doing that. I said, well, okay. He goes, well, wait a minute. And he sent Steve, shot Steve an email and email him and Steve immediately emailed me back and invited me to be a guest on the show that night. And I liked it so much. And Steve sends everybody an invite every week. Anybody that wants to come and contribute, you know, you pretty much can, you can, uh, you got something to share. Don't be shy. I think Steve would agree. You know, always love to see somebody that's been around before and hadn't been a while. But thank you so much, Marty. 
you're a great guy. You know, all the stuff you've gone through the last couple of years. I'm glad you're finally set up with a beautiful system and a beautiful home. And I'm telling you, I'm going to camp out there one day. <laughs> I, got a, I got a spot set up for you, man. Just come on up. <laughs> but, and all the rest of you, I can't wait to get out. You know, I, I'm legally blind, so I can't drive anymore. And I let my license expire, so I can't, I can't even get on a damn plane. So, like, I keep missing the Humboldt con conference because I just can't drive that far, you know. So we go to, we try to go to Michigan. Uh, well, I, can I ask Josh a question? Are, are you rescheduling anything, or are we just too, are we still too indefinite on this virus? No, I mean they they are. I just I didn't cancel. I postponed uh, for a year. That's and, what I thought. Just, oh, a year. So it's just so like, that, that. Yeah, uh, unless we have a civil war, which I 100% support at this point. Um, I know we're not going there, but I. I'm yeah, let's not go there. I, I'm uh, down to feed the fucking. We've been it this long without getting the. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Nobody. So this isn't over show for rants. Maybe next you week. Shout uh, out! out to. Uh, Embracing organics, they've had uh, stream problems all night with YouTube harassing them. So yeah, I saw them. I saw their message. Um, yeah, that's a shame when they start messing with people. Well, we've uh, we've taken a lot of time from these wonderful people's evening. Um, thanks again, everybody, for watching. Uh, it's been episode two hundred. Uh, we'll be back again next week with some more awesome content. I can't uh, say thank you enough to all the awesome guests, uh, Frenchie, um, Wade. Steve, Chris, Roger, Josh, everybody, thanks again so much. Um, if you want to find out more about our content, check us out on YouTube at Potent Ponics or on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, over 150 other places where you can find podcasts. Um, and uh, we will see you guys again soon. Appreciate it and uh, take care. Guys. Later.